saw a change there from the work of Hezekiah in the preceding few chapters, which I believe to be the end time work on the worldwide, and that which has continued, even though worldwide more or less died in uh, 94, 95 through there, after Herbert Armstrong had died in 86. We've had about 15 years uh, to continue, and the work is about to die. It's gone into Babylon in great part, uh, and certainly Babylon knows everything about us, as we saw in chapter 39. But we see a change in chapter 40, for those who do remain faithful, that God begins a message of comfort, a message of blessing, and starts out chapter 40 with comfort you, comfort you, my people, and that does say that there has to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Of course, John the Baptist fulfilled a part of that, and I did go to Liz and show that. Uh, much of John the Baptist's ministry was a message of repentance, of changing, and not doing it in pretense, or not doing it uh, in terms of lip service, because he even warned them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? There will be those in the end time who are not willing to change their lives. They just want to do whatever is necessary so that they might be spared the tribulation, so that they might be saved from that. Uh, and yet, John the Baptist made it clear in his message that true dependence has to come from the heart. It has to be real change, not just hearing and listening and doing what is necessary in terms of lip service in order to save ourselves. That is not the point. We are here to become godly. We are here to change the way we think and act and begin to think and act as God and Jesus Christ think and act. Uh, hypocrisy, lukewarmness, lackadaisical filling of chairs will not do it here at the end time. So that is part of the message, and it should be, in one sense, a comforting message, in that if we do repent and change and truly be what we ought to be, there is great blessing ahead for us. If we don't, then a very dire prediction is made here in the Scripture. But there is a message for comfort for those who do hear the message at the end time of repentance. And isn't that what the message was to all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? That all, all seven, are told to overcome, to change, to grow, to repent, to be different. That is the main message that needs to be preached before Jesus Christ returns. And then he's... In chapter 40, he shows that God is going to be start revealing his power, his glory, through men, and sends those to say that the grass withers, the flower fades. In other words, all the works of men, everything that man has done, is going to fade and be blown away. And only that which God is doing will be worthwhile and be saved. And we have the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing. So there is great comfort, great strength, great hope in understanding that. And then he says in verse 9 that those who bring, or he that brings good tidings to Zion 
should lift up the voice and say, Behold your God, that Jesus Christ is coming soon at his Father's behest, and the message should be that Christ is going to take charge both of his church and ultimately of the entire world. <clears throat> but he deals with the church first. That is where the blessing will come first, and later on, of course, to all physical Israel and the world as the millennium gets underway. But some things have to be done before Christ can return. And therefore, a way has to be prepared for him, a highway for him. Uh, there has to be a challenging of the governments of this world. And they will even be shaken up by God showing his glory through men every valley being exalted and every mountain and hill having been made low, speaking of the governments of this world, not necessarily of physical mountains. That may apply in the millennium, but here we're talking about before Christ ever returns, when a warning is coming and a way has to be prepared before him. Just as John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ's ministry nearly 2,000 years ago, or over 2,000 years ago, then a message has to be sent out and the church has to be prepared and the world warned that Christ is coming. So, whatever man does is worthless. And only that are those who respect and fear God, because our God is coming. That's why he says, Behold your God. And then he gives comforting words in verses 10 and 11 about how he will uh, return to this earth, feed his flock like a shepherd, but he is going to begin to do that by righteous shepherds in the meantime. Then he goes on through the rest of chapter 40, and I'm reviewing here, and shows that to God, all of us down here are as nothing. All the nations like the drop in a bucket. And then in verse 27, a bit of an indictment. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? And this is speaking, first of all, the spiritual Israel. It's speaking to us. Why do you say, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from God? I know God will just show me mercy, and the things that I'm doing, he apparently can't see. Therefore, we don't change. We think everything will be all right. A certain amount of self-righteousness abides in us, like Nelson was talking about in the sermonette. But the people who are in the church today, for the most part, have this very attitude. I'm rich and increased with goods, I have need of nothing, not realizing that we are naked and blind and cannot see our problems. We think, for the most part, throughout the church, our church is, as they are now splintered, that we are okay. Now, it's easy for us to look at the others from our perspective, comparing ourselves among ourselves, which is not wise, and say, we're the ones that are okay, and everyone else is wrong. And nearly every organization does that. And I'm telling you, we cannot afford that, brethren. We simply cannot. I can't. You can't. We have a lot of changing to do. If we do, then blessings will come. And God says to those here in verse 29, he gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. If we are weak, poor in spirit, realizing that we must be humble and meek and not proud and vain and self-righteous, then God will strengthen us to do his work. It says 
Even the young people, you know, old people realize they're weak and can't do much. But the young people who think they're mighty and strong and can whip the world can't either. But those who wait on the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, verse 31. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So God says that if we are meek, humble, and having a sackcloth attitude, in other words, that he will give us the strength we need to do the job that is ahead. So in verse, in chapter 41, we'll pick it up there where we left off. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. He's continuing the thought that he opened up in verse 31. Uh, we, as a people, had a certain amount of strength in worldwide at one point. We were united, more or less. Uh, we had a base to work from in Pasadena, Big Sandy, Brickettwood, and other places. And we're doing a fairly mighty work a message of calling that God had set up. But since then, we have been a diaspora. We have been scattered. We have been spewed out of God's mouth because we were not what we ought to have been. So he says, let the people renew their strength. There's a time now after this has gone on that we will again have strength. This is a very hopeful, comforting message here. Let them come near. So let them come to God. This is this is God speaking. Let them renew their strength and come near to God. That's what we need to be doing. Drawing near to God. Because He is He is where the strength comes from. He's the source. So we renew our strength by coming near. And once we have our nearness, our closeness to God established, then let them speak. There's no sense in speaking until we are close to God, know His way, know what He wants, then speak. There are so many in the church today who are speaking and they have no clue as to what God is doing or what He wants done. So it's, as we'll see, quite vain. Then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. We need to draw together. Our judgment is now, and judgment is about to come on the church as a whole, and it's about to come on the world as a whole. So we need to draw together and draw to God, because that judgment is coming near. Then God shows what he is going to do. Who raised up the righteous man from the east? called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them his dust to his sword, and his driven stubble to his bow. Now, Barnes notes, a commentary, says that historically this was speaking of Cyrus, who did help deliver God's people from Babylon, those who wished to go at least. Uh, but the historical meaning is not what I'm concerned about now. I believe since this is an in-time in time, uh, context, chapter 40 is speaking of a voice crying in the wilderness here at the end, and God beginning to give strength and power to his church. There's even a, a subtitle here in my Bible that says, God's church is exhorted to trust in him. 
over further over in chapter 41. So even whoever put this uh, issue of the Bible together recognized that this is talking about the church. And it's talking, as we know, about the end-time church. But God is going to raise up a man. He's going to come from the east. He says he is from the north, and another scripture, but he will come from the east. Uh, verse 25, we'll get to that a little later on. It says, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, which means the east. He'll call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar and as the potter treads clay. And it's a man. It's not speaking of Christ here, although ultimately Christ is all in all. Uh, this man whom God will call is a type of Christ, or a forerunner of Christ, and Christ will work through him. And then Christ will come and do his own work in the millennium. But there has to be a work done ahead of time. And that we reviewed last week in Zechariah 4, that God is going to bring Zerubbabel, who will knock down the hills and mountains, make them flat before him. And that's speaking of one of the two witnesses, as can be proved by uh, comparing Zechariah 4, Oh, what's the verse right there toward the end where it talks about the two anointed ones? And comparing that with Revelation 11, who are the anointed ones, or sons of oil. So that's whom it is speaking of here. God is showing what he is going to do. Out of all this confusion in the church, God has an answer. Uh, most everyone is overlooking this. They don't understand what is going to happen. But at any way, at any rate... Uh, from verse 25 compared here with verse 2, God is going to call someone who is essentially a righteous man. He's someone who is from the north, and he's going to come from the east. Now, I think we need to understand the perspective here a little bit, and that is, where is the church today? Uh, the United States is a primary or a major part of Israel today. And this is where God has raised up most of spiritual Israel, the church. And we have to look at these prophecies from the perspective of where God is working today. I think it's Isaiah 33, which we read a few weeks ago, uh, which says that it is a land of far distances where God is going to do his work. Now, the Middle East cannot be uh, deemed a land of far distances in any shape, fashion, or form. But this country, where God has the spiritual Jew today, is a land of far distances. So I think that there is plenty of evidence in the Bible, and I'm not giving you all of it now, but this is a brief review. There is plenty of evidence that God is going to do his work primarily in the United States of America. He has already, in fact, done that in the calling. What we see called before us today, the amount of people God called under Herbert Armstrong, is essentially what God is going to work with here at the end time. And the overall, overwhelming majority of those are in the United States. There are some scattered through Canada, quite a few, some in England, some in South Africa and Australia, and scattered around, but I think probably over 90% were called in the United States. So if you're talking about the end-time prophecies and the end-time church, the perspective is from where God is working 
and he has worked primarily here. Now, he's going to call people from all over the world, as we shall see, but it is primarily here. So when it says a man from the north, I suspect that that man is going to be uh, north from the perspective of where God's work is today. So somewhere probably northern United States. And when he comes, where he's coming, he will come from east to the west. Because what God is going to do is basically going to be in a wilderness and mountains and deserts. And it will be in the west because that's the only place that you have that in the United States where spiritual Israel is being worked with today. So just a little perspective here as we get into where God is working and what he is going to do. So he's raised up a righteous man from the east, called him to his foot. So God is going to summon this man to do a job before him and gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. Uh, mountains and hills will be made low and the crooked will be made straight. There will be a warning that goes out in this end time work that will go far beyond anything that has been done in the past, far beyond what John the Baptist did, or Moses, or Elijah, who are types of the end time too. But this is speaking of the leader of those, I think, and, and uh, certainly of Zerubbabel, because it is said of him, specifically in Zechariah 4, that the mountains and hills will be made as plain. So he will be given power over the kings of this world. They cannot destroy him, cannot stop him, because God is going to do a mighty work with a very few people. That is the way God has always done it. Look at David and Goliath, as we heard about in the sermonette. All Israel was there, and all Israel was afraid. But God sent one little young fellow with a slingshot, to scare all the Philistines off by slaying one giant man. That's the way God works. When Gideon had thousands and thousands of men, God reduced it to 300. Everything that is done in the end is going to show the glory of God, not man. And we're going to see that the works of men, even in the church today, are vanity and nothing before we get to the end of this chapter, or the end of chapter 42, wherever it is. Okay, so the, the leadership that God raises up in spiritual Judah, in the church, God is going to give power, just as he gave David power over Goliath and Gideon power uh, to defeat Israel's enemies. Uh, verse three, 3, he pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. He's going to go places he's never gone before and is going to have safety and protection through it all. They simply will not be able to hurt God's ministry in the end time. And it will all be to the glory of God. Who has wrought or worked and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? Who can name every generation? Who can name all the people that have existed on this earth? Who has seen the whole thing? You know, man tries to piece history together. We try to get shards of pottery, and we try to get writings off of tomb walls, and we uh, read ancient writers, and we try to figure out what all has happened in the past. 
we get a very, very unclear picture, just as we, without God's help, get a very unclear picture of the future. But God's seen it all. He says, I, the Lord, I'm the one who's worked from the beginning and seen all the generations. I, the Lord, the first and with the last. Now, in Revelation, Christ says, I am the first and the last. But he says, he is the first. And I, th- I like the way this is uh, written. With the last. The last generation that he works through, he's going to be with. And we have opportunity to be part of that because out of the many that God called here at the end time, few are now being chosen. And you and I have opportunity to be one of those few, or some of those few. So he says he will be with the last. I am he. The island saw it and feared when God begins to do his strange and mighty work. When he lifts himself up, as Zechariah 2 says, to do his work, the world is going to fear. All the coastlines of the earth, that's where most of the population is. It says islands in the King James. I've looked it up, and the word really means coastland, coastlines. The coastline saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. They're going to be afraid of what they see, but they're going to draw up to look, to see what's going on. Uh, now, wait a minute. Let me back up on that. It says, The islands saw the coastlines in fear. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near, and came. I, I think I was giving you a wrong slant on that. People from all over the world, coastlines are going to begin to see the work that God does, and they are going to draw near and come and work to build his temple. That is the sense of this, rather than the world fearing. I almost got off on the wrong direction there. The context after this will show that that is the correct understanding of this. Those who understand that God is there, and those that he is with, are going to begin to make noises and begin to do things that is going to get the attention of God's scattered people. And they're going to fear God, and they're going to fear him in the right way. They're going to be afraid, and they're going to draw near and come. Now, that is the message of the book of Hezekiah, the book of the message of Haggai, that God will stir the leaders, and he will stir the people to come and build the temple. And it's going to be at a time when most of the people are going to say, it isn't time to build the temple of the Lord. We have time left. We have a lot of time. But no, God is going to begin to call the people together. He's going to have to do some things to show where he is working. And then the people are going to fear and come. Now we're going to see that going on in verse 6. They helped everyone, his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, be of good courage. Now this is, we're going to see the same message here in Isaiah 41 that we saw in Haggai. He's going to say, fear not and work and be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering, and he fastened it with nails that it should not be moved. In other words, something is being built. Well, what is being built at the end time but the temple of God? So there are going to be people who come from all the coasts of the earth. 
won't be a great number, only 10%, a tithe of God's people will hear and fear and answer and come. But God says he will stir them, and they will come, and they will encourage one another. They'll strengthen one another. In other words, there will be unity of purpose in building the temple of God, and it has got to be of greater glory than anything which has been in the past, certainly more so than what we experienced in Worldwide Church of God. Yes, there was a calling made there, but out of all those tens of thousands who were called, there is a choosing going on. And God is going to choose out those who are willing to submit to him and be humble, yielded, and obedient to build his end-time temple. So he's going to winnow it down from a mighty calling or a great calling or a calling of many down to a few chosen ones to build his end-time temple. So he's going to take those who are the best, those who have shown faithfulness, obedience, Bigness and willingness to help one another rather than be selfish and self-righteous. There, there will be an attitude of meekness and humility and willingness to work together rather than the politics and all of the things that went on in the church before. There will not be striving for position. There will simply be each person trying to do what he can do to build the temple, whether he be a goldsmith or someone who works metal with a hammer or an anvil or with nails, whatever we have skills and abilities to do, God will cause us to do and to encourage one another. Because he says in Haggai 2 as well, in this place will I bring peace. So there has to be peace and unity of purpose in the end time work. That's what God is saying is going to happen. This is the same story, same message that we find in Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. Verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Now, Abraham was a righteous man. And those in the church who were spiritual Jews at the end, therefore spring from Abraham. It doesn't matter what our race is. We're not talking physical here. Now, physical Israel will have a part in the millennium, but he's talking about spiritual Judah here first. This is an end-time context. It's not a millennial context. And those who have been called into the church are the seed of his friend Abraham. Those whom he has chosen, and we'll see that more and more as we go through here. So many were called under Herbert Armstrong. And a few are now being chosen. We'll know fairly soon now who is chosen to do the end time work. Remember that Hebrews 12, 23, 24 through there show that Zion and Jerusalem are types of the end time church. But also Galatians shows that we are also the Israel of God. So when it speaks of Israel and Jacob here, he's speaking of spiritual Israel spiritual Jacob, and the spiritual church. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, see, God is going to gather them, stir them to come from the ends of the earth to build the latter temple, and called you from the chief men thereof, and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and not cast you away. See, he's cast many away. He spewed us out of his mouth. But out of this spewing, 
God is going to reserve a tenth, a tithe. That's one reason a tithe is so important for the end-time church to understand, to grasp, and to do on a physical level so that we might grasp and understand the spiritual level of what tithing is all about. Well, God will choose those who are willing to give of themselves. He will choose them and not cast them away. He says, fear you not. Well, if this is a millennial context, why would we fear anyway? Well, this is a time when there still could be fear, and indeed will be fear. But he tells us, fear not, for I am with you. Didn't he say back there a few verses back that he was with the first, or he was, he was there at the first, but he would be with the last? I am with you. Be not dismayed. Well, we can look around, and there's a great deal that we could be dismayed about today, is there not? Look at the church. Look at the mess we have. And he says, look around, but don't be dismayed. Don't fear. For I am your God. If we look to God, everything is going to be all right. Now, that's the whole message of Isaiah 8. Don't fear the conspiracy or the confederacy, the one world, new order coming. God's new world order is coming. And he is God, and he is going to win out, because all flesh is as grass before him. It will wither and fade away. For I am God, for your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. So as helpless and as powerless as we seem to be right now in the middle of this spewing of Laodiceanism that God has brought upon us, including you and me, God says he's going to turn it around and he will help us. There's part of the message of comfort that was introduced in verse 1. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. What's the strongest hand in the world? What's the strongest hand in the universe? The right hand of God. And Jesus Christ sits at his right hand. So there may be some symbolism here of Jesus Christ doing the work of giving us strength at the right hand of the Father. He will uphold him, us with the right hand of his righteousness. So this is all based upon and promised in the righteousness of God. And if he promises it and says it will happen, it's going to happen because he is righteous and he will not lie to us. All right, let's go on in verse 11. Behold, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. We will have enemies who will come against us. But God says they will be ashamed and confounded. They will be confused and frustrated. And they'll feel badly that what they tried to do wouldn't work. That will be shameful to them. Because in the eyes of the rest of the world, they were going to destroy this little people to worship the true God rather than accepting the image of the beast. But they can't defeat us. They won't be able to because of the power of God. And that's what we have to keep in mind continually, that nothing that is done is done by man, but by the power of God. All the works that the churches are trying to do right now are not accomplishing much. Why? Because God is not with them. God is not empowering them. But he does say that he will empower those whom he calls together and stirs to come to build his temple. I want us to be a part of that. They shall be as nothing. All those who are our enemies will be as nothing. 
and they that strive with you shall perish. What does Revelation 11 say? That with the mouth from the mouth of the two witnesses, if anyone comes and tries to harm them, fire will come and devour them. Well, this is that exact same story being given in greater detail. You shall seek them and shall not find them, even them that contended with you. Where where the enemies go? Well, if you get tried, the rest are going to back away and leave. What did Sennacherib do when uh, 145,000 of his men died overnight? And he turned tail and ran back to Assyria. God, in his power, is going to show this world that even through the weak and the base and the small and the, those who are not mighty and noble by any means, he can do a powerful work. Why? Because we're wonderful? No. Because God is great. And we are nothing. And the quicker we realize that as individuals, the greater the opportunity that we can be a part of what God does here at the end. They that war against you shall be as nothing, and as a thing of nothing. Verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. So we're going to feel a nearness and a closeness to God. Well, what did he tell us to do at the beginning of this chapter? He said, Come near to him. Get close to him. And then speak. Why do you think? that I have been preaching this message of grow, change, repent, and overcome for the last nearly ten years, starting next month. Because that's what God... No, it's not that soon. It's only nine years, I guess. Beginning of 96. So 2000. Yeah, we're coming up on nine years that this message has been going out. We have to simply draw near to God. Then he will draw near to us. Many, many scriptures say that. The ball is in our court to draw near to God. And then speak. He's not going to give anyone power to speak again at this end time. To speak so that anyone would pay any attention to it until we draw near to him. There are many who do not understand the story of what God is going to do or how he is going to do it who are trying to speak. But if you notice, not hardly or hardly anyone is paying any attention to it. It's just a work of men that goes on at four, five, six, seven o'clock in the morning, some mornings, and isn't accomplishing much. Because God isn't with it. God accomplished a great deal with worldwide, even in spite of ourselves. Because he had to call a lot of people. But now he's choosing. And he's going to be a lot pickier now than he was then. Because that was a big calling. And when you start culling and choosing, you become pickier. So we need to be ready. And if we are, then he will hold our hand and say, fear not, I will help you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob and you men of Israel. Speaking again here in an end-time context of those who are spiritual Jacob and spiritual Israel. Remember, Jacob held on with great persistence. Those who endure to the end. Maybe that's why he uses Jacob here as an example, because that was one of the highlights of Jacob's life, was 
clinging to Christ all night long, not giving up, not turning loose. I will help you, says the Eternal, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Start talking about salvation, we start talking about the plan of redemption. So it's talking to the church here, who are those who are redeemed from this world. Verse 15, Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. Some think that Israel, I've heard this theory, that Israel, as a physical nation, is going to raise up and fight the Gentiles. And that is not true. Physical Israel is going to be destroyed and only a tithe physically will go into the millennium. They will be decimated, only one-tenth remaining to God. But he is going to make his church a tenth of them, the faithful tenth that he calls together, as a sharp, threshing instrument to knock down the mountains and the governments of this world, preparing for the return of Christ. They will have to be humbled. The beast will have to be destroyed, pretty much, uh, by the time the two witnesses are killed in the streets of Jerusalem. They will have had a message such as has never been preached before, and they will finally be killed and then the resurrection. But this, this world will have been warned, and its governments will have been made plain and flat preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. Uh, you can tie this in with uh, Micah 4 through 5. And I think I should go back there for a moment. Let's go to Micah 4. Here's a prophecy of the church, of the little uh, daughter of Zion whom God chooses to give the first power to where he tells us that our king, our counselor, has perished in verse 9 of chapter 4 and tells us to be in pain and labor to bring forth the daughter of Zion and to leave the city and go dwell in the field, even in Babylon, and be delivered there because God will redeem us from the hand of our enemies. Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah 41? And he, he tells us down in verse 13 to rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain to the Lord, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So, it does talk then in chapter 5 about the Assyrian coming into the land, and the church standing up against it. Not just the two, but also seven and eight men, it says later on down in the chapter. I'll not review the whole thing. I think you're familiar with it. And if you're not, you should read it. But it's talking about the end-time church threshing this world. There's not going to be any threshing in the millennium. Christ will have already threshed the nations and the seven last plagues come and all of that. The millennium starts, there won't be any need for that. The only threshing that will be done by Israel is at the end time, and it's done by spiritual Israel, not physical. Physical Israel is going to go into tribulation and be destroyed. And that is the context of what this is talking about. The work of John the Baptist, the work of the two witnesses, the work of the end-time church. 
You could again tie in Zechariah 4-7 where it says Zerubbabel will cause the hills and the mountains to be made plain and knocked flat. When God sets his hands to do something, he will get it done. So God says that he will make us strong and, the fan, and we will fan them and the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the eternal and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. Remember how Israel sang when they crossed the Red Sea, the song of Miriam? They were so happy having crossed that Red Sea. It must have scared them half to death when the wind began to blow and to blow that sea apart. They crossed through and probably did it in great fear and trepidation, but they were so scared of the Egyptians coming behind them, they had no choice but to move forward. And this world is going to get to a place that you and I have no choice but to move forward in God. And we'd better be ready for that. But when they did get to the other side and saw the waves close over the Egyptians and kill them, they sang great songs of deliverance and gave great praise to glory and glory to God. And we're going to be in the same position here at the end time. God will deliver us, and then we will give him great praise. And you shall rejoice in the eternal and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. It will be him, not man, who delivers us. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, does, does he not talk in Amos 4 and 8 about a spiritual famine? Where we need the water of the word and there is none? When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So, some people are going to seek truth. What does God say? Seek and you will find. There will be those who begin to truly seek God. What does he say he is going to do when that happens? I, the Lord God, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together. Now this is speaking certainly of a spiritual wilderness and desert, but I think there are enough scriptures to indicate that it will also be done in a physical wilderness and desert. Uh, you could tie in uh, Isaiah 4, 1 through 5 here. Maybe I'll turn back there. We have been through it in recent weeks, going through the book of Isaiah. But this story needs to be told. And, the, and Isaiah is as comforting a book as there is. Now, it shows the horror that is coming, but it also shows the peace and safety and comfort that God's people are going to need. Isaiah 4. And in that day, seven women, symbolizing churches, shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. The church is being decimated. And all those seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are alive, not well, but alive here at the end. Except one, I guess he says, is dead. Except even in that one, there's a few names. One that says it's alive or living, but is dead. But there are a few names there. So all seven women will take hold of one man at the end. God is going to raise up Zerubbabel, one of the two witnesses, and that is where they will come. 
In that day shall the branch of the Lord, a righteous branch, righteous man, be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of spiritual Israel. And he that shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem, remember those are code words for the church. Those who have endured, those who have been faithful, those that are left, shall be called holy. Can't be speaking to physical Israel, they're not holy. It's talking about God's holy chosen ones. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem, still alive spiritually. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters, the churches of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem, or the church, from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. God is going through the church with a spirit of judgment and burning right now. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud of smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. Doesn't it say about the end time church there in I think it's Ze- uh, Zechariah 2 the context of the end time church, the end time temple and the two witnesses that he will be a wall of fire around. It's talking about the same type time of the same time and prophecy about this end time church. And we're going to see this very soon now. All right, going back to uh, Isaiah 41. Going to plant in the wilderness. Now keep your finger there and turn for a moment to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 and verse 3. Well, let me pick up the context in verse 1. The Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. Now, we just read in chapter 40 about bringing good tidings to Zion and to Jerusalem, the church. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. We have a lot of brokenhearted people in the church right now. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to those who are captive in Babylon. God is providing a way for us to get out of Babylon if we wish to do so. Only a small number will, just as when Israel came out of physical Babylon after the captivity of 70 years. The opening of the prison to them that are bound. I believe that the 70 years is finished. I believe that God has provided a way out, and I don't think very many are taking advantage of it. But more and more will as time goes on, and they see where God is doing his work. So, a message of comfort is coming for those who have been scattered in the church today. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and of the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint to them that mourn in Zion, that's in the church, to give to them beauty for ashes. Now, we've had a spirit of burning we just read, uh, and there's going to be a lot of ash left. And we'll be given beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Feeling beaten and trodden down. That they might be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the eternal. That he might be glorified. So here we have clear definition of what trees are used for in biblical prophecy. Women are churches, but trees can be churches, and we as individuals can also be trees. 
So he plants seven trees in the wilderness here in Isaiah 41. Why seven? Because that's the number of categories of people God has here at the end. Revelation 2 and 3 describes seven basic attitudes. And even though we are scattered and vomited and spewed out into many, many, many small pieces of sputum, we still fit in three general, or seven general categories. So all those categories of people, as they repent and overcome, are going to come to one man, Isaiah 40, I mean Isaiah 4, and here in Isaiah 41, God says he will plant some of all seven in the wilderness and in the desert. Now why? Verse 20 answers that. That they may see and know and consider and understand together. God is going to begin to do a mighty work. And he is going to draw them together in the desert and in the wilderness. Not so that they're scattered around the world as we are today. It is talking about a physical location that he is going to gather his people. Not just into one organization, but a physical location that they may see and know and consider and understand together. They'll be together. And they'll begin to understand what God is doing. That the hand of the Eternal has done this. And the Holy One, Holy One of Israel has created it. Then he issues a challenge. Produce your cause, says the Eternal. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. God issues a challenge to those in the church today to come forth, to show all their reasons for what they're doing, to show all their justifications for how they are, and to show us what God is doing. And you know what? They can't. They simply don't know. They don't understand these scriptures whatsoever. Produce your cause. Let them bring them forth. Show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things more to come. Just let them look at the past and see if they can figure out the future. Now, can we, and God is telling us something there, I think, that we can look at what has happened before in the biblical types, and we should be able to consider the history of Israel and the history of the church and understand what will happen here at the end. We know Israel went into captivity for 70 years. We know the early New Testament church lasted approximately 70 years. We know Zechariah 1, an end-time prophecy, says God will begin to show mercy and opportunity to escape at the end of 70 years. And I believe that time ended in about 2003 and 4. It's just about done. And this opportunity is very near upon us. And maybe the opportunity has already been given us, but not too many people know about it yet. But let them bring forth. Where can you go in the church today 
and know the story and find out and hear it preached of what is going on and why it is going on and what is going to be the end of it. Where can you go and hear that? Where can you find out about things that are to come? Verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, that we may listen to you and understand and know that you're even close to God. Yes, do good or do evil. Now, doesn't, isn't that what he tells the end time church in Revelation 3? I wish you were hot or cold, good or evil, not in between, not just warming a chair and going through the motions. Talking to the end time church here. Yes, do good or do evil. One of the two. That we may that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Impress us. Do good or do evil or do something. Impress us. Behold, you are of nothing, and your work of nothing. An abomination is he that chooses you. Why does God say in Revelation eleven? that he's going to cut down three big trees, speaking of churches, and cut off three shepherds in one month. Because he loathes them, he says. They are doing a work of men, and they don't know what God is doing, is the reason three big ones are going to be cut down and three shepherds cut off. They're nothing, and their work is nothing. What's going on today is a work of men, not the work of God. When God sets his hand to do something, you are going to see fireworks. But he's choosing and preparing. And he's preparing for himself a humble and meek group of people that he can work through and stir to action to come and build the temple of God and to set this world on its heels. That is what is coming next. What is being done in trying to publish and preach and evangelize and convert the world and whatever they think they're trying to do is going to come to nothing, to naught. God says, verse 25, how he's going to do it. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, that is, from the east. He's coming from the east, that means he's headed west. Shall he call upon my name? And he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treads clay. There again, tie in uh, Zechariah 4, verse 7, where before Zerubbabel, the hills and mountains, the governments of this world will be made clay. I think I'll turn back to Ezekiel 17 here for a moment as well. I've gone through this a time or two in Ezekiel 17. It is a chapter that is both a parable and a riddle. In other words, it's doubly hard to understand. But I think God has opened it up that we might understand. The great eagle named first is Herbert Armstrong, and he had different feathers and peoples from all over the world who came to him. And he was set up in a land of traffic, a city of merchants, verse 4, in Los Angeles. And... He planted the seed of the land in a fruitful field and placed by great waters, the truth, by a willow tree that needed water, and it grew. But it became not a tree, but a spreading vine of low stature. It spread all over the earth, but it wasn't very big. 
and became a vine that brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. And then after him came another great eagle, another leader in the church, with great wings and many feathers. It was still big. And this vine did bend her roots toward him. People began to turn to Joe the Gosh, and shot forth her branches toward him, that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. Now I'm giving you just the barest details here. I've filled it in before in other sermons. It was planted in the good soil by great waters. The doctrine was still basically right before he changed it, that it might bring forth branches, that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine, Ezekiel 17.8. Say you, thus says the Lord God, shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof that it wither? And is not what has happened under the Dukajas? It shall wither and all the leaves of her spring be plucked up. Not many people will be needed to pluck it up. It just fell apart. Verse 10. Yes, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Right there in Pasadena, it just dried up and not blew away. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, that is, this second eagle, Know you not what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem. Pagan doctrine from Babylon is being brought into the church, and has taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. What did the conscience do? Led the church right to Babylon. Set it upon its face there, as Zechariah 5 says. Two unclean birds, both of them named Kosh. And is taken of the king's seed, that which was raised up under Herbert Armstrong, and made a covenant with him, and has taken an oath of him, Oh, Mr. Armstrong, I'll follow in your steps, I'll walk in your shoes, I'll do everything you said. He has also taken the mighty of the land, that is, evangelists, the pastors, the leaders of the church, that the kingdom might be based, that it might not lift up it, itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt. He sent the ministry to various Protestant seminaries to learn doctrine. Sent them right into Egypt. That they might give him horses and much people. And he thought he would be mighty and powerful as a result of that. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that does such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? Can he do all those things and be delivered from it? No. As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Herbert Armstrong and Joe Dukas died in the midst of Babylon, that is, one of our cities, Los Angeles, the land of traffic, and Hollywood. Probably Hollywood and L.A. have more influence on the world than any other cities in the world today, as far as morals and so on. Maybe not financial, because that's New York and London, but certainly in terms of morality, Hollywood and L.A. are at the bottom, top of the immorality. So they died there. Anyway, God shows that it's all going to be scattered. But then what is God going to do? That's what I want to get to here. I want us to hear words of comfort, because that's what Isaiah 40, 41, and so on are. So after everything has been destroyed of Herbert Armstrong and Joseph Dodge, the many that were called, few are going to be chosen. What's God going to do? Verse 22. 
Well, he says in verse 21, he says, it scattered them to all the winds. Well, isn't that where we are today? The church has been scattered to all the winds. The leaders are both dead. And now we are sitting here scattered. That's where we sit today, verse 21. All right, what's God going to do next? Here's the story of what God is going to do next in God's own words. But no one understands this. They don't know what God's going to do. But he, he, tells, he tells us right here, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, that out of all this, the tree that God has raised up here at the end, that he is tearing down now, he's going to take a tender twig, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. Doesn't he tell us that our light must be on a hill and be seen? God is going to plant it as a strong government in a high place on a mountain. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. So it's going to be on a mountain in Israel. And we are Israel today. It's going to be right here within Babylon or in a nation that has become Babylonish. Is where it will be set. That could be in the Middle East. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit, and be a goodly cedar. Won't be rotten in the center, like we've seen before. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit, and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. God is going to bring people from all over the earth to dwell under this one on a high mountain. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So they're going to be, that signifies safety. When you come underneath a tree... Animals, birds, they gather under big cedar trees when the weather is bad, and there they find safety. And all the trees of the fields, all the churches, shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. Now, God has been drying up the dry tree, and he has been tearing down the tree that was there. And he is very shortly now going to raise up from a tender one someone who cares a tree that will flourish and everyone can come there for comfort and peace and safety. In this place, Haggai says, will I bring peace in the latter temple. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. In other words, it's as good as done. Once God says he's going to do something, it's as good as done. And we need to understand Ezekiel 17 in relationship to Zechariah, to Haggai, and to the story as laid out here by Isaiah. This is the comforting message that Isaiah puts forth. Check my watch here. <clears throat> but nobody understands it. He's made that very clear here toward the end of Isaiah 41. But he is going to raise up one who comes from the north, from the rising of the sun, going to go from the east and wind up in the west. And he'll come upon the governments of this world as princes upon uh, mortar and the potter, as the potter treads clay. All right, let's go on. Verse 26. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know from the very early beginnings 
of what God is going to do here in the end, who is declaring that we may know it? Where has the story been told? And before time that we may say he is righteous, who has told us before it happens so that when the righteous man comes from the east, we will be able to recognize what God is doing. Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. Nobody understands today. The church just doesn't get it. The ministry doesn't get it. There is none that hears your words. No one will consider God's words. They just think that, well, Herbert Armstrong was supposed to preach the gospel around the world as a witness and in the end would come and he didn't finish his job, so I guess i got to do it for him. That's sort of the attitude. But they're not listening to what God says and they can't understand why the church is the way it is. They don't know what has happened. There's none that hears these words that we're considering today. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. Someone is going to come and say, Behold them. The story of the two witnesses in the end time church has to be told. Someone is, someone is going to tell that story. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. So God is going to send one who will be able to tell you what this message of comfort that he begins to show in, in chapter 40 and 41 is. One that brings good tidings to Zion, verse 9 of chapter 40. I'm speaking of the same thing here. One that brings good tidings. That says, Behold your God, and preaches a message of repentance. God, is God, God does not do anything except he shows it through his servants, the prophets. And he has written this whole story through these prophets in the Bible. And we need to understand what these prophecies say. Notice Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9. Verse 11. Jeremiah 9, verse 11. He's talking about the church here. And he says, I will make Jerusalem heaps. That is, instead of homes, instead of buildings, instead of churches and organizations, piles of rubble. That's what he's going to do. I will make Jerusalem piles of rubble. Isn't that what we see basically today in the church? And a den of dragons, false doctrine, satanic teachings will come in, and they will begin to take over. Isn't that what Jude says about the end time church? About how false ministers will come? They did it in the early New Testament church over a period of 70 years. And they've done it in the end time church as well. Uh, Jeremiah 9, verse 11. A den of dragons. That's what the church is today. And I will make the cities of Judah desolate. The churches, people are leaving, leaving, leaving. People are giving up. People are quitting. The churches are becoming desolate and without an inhabitant. Verse 12. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it? For what the land perishes, and is burned up like a wilderness, that none passes through. <coughs> That's the message 
to the end-time church. That it will be devastated, spewed out. Verse 13. Why? The Lord said, because. Okay, here's why. Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart, and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. Didn't we drift? Didn't we follow the imaginations of our own heart? And hasn't most of the church now gone after Balaam, Babylon, materiality, this world, Satan's way? That's where the church has gone. Now do you understand why God would have to send a message of repentance here at the end? Because we have gotten too far from God and his way of life and his law. Now, all right, let's go back then to Isaiah 41. So he says he'll send one that brings good tidings that will talk about them, about the two witnesses to come. One will, will talk about them. And that is the work that God will raise up along with the end-time remnant to do his work at the end. Verse 28, For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor. Now that ties in with Micah 5, a 4. Remember he says, Is your king perished? Or is your king dead? Is your counselor perished? I guess is the way it actually says it. Herbert Armstrong is the only one we had we would all listen to. And he's dead, he's perished, he's gone. So now you look at the church, and is there anyone we can all look to where we can say, there's the man, there's the counselor? No, he's perished, gone. No one has stood up that in our eyes had the, uh, the backing of God the way Herbert Armstrong had. There's no one in the church today that everyone can say, well, that's the one we look to. We've got a lot who proclaim themselves as being that, and a few will listen to this one, and a few will listen to that one. But when you look around at the church today, this is exactly where we are in prophecy, verse 28. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them, could answer a word. Go to the ministry today. I, I challenge you. Go anywhere you want throughout the church. And try to find out what's going on and what's about to happen. And how God is going to do it. And you won't find the answer. They don't know what these scriptures are saying and they don't apply it to the church. So they can't answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works, all the magazines, the different broadcasts, everything they're doing to try to do a work, God says, are nothing means nothing to him. Their molten images are wind and confusion. They set up their own works, which are idolatrous. Molten images. Now they're not melting down gold or silver or, or carving images out of wood, but they might as well be, because their work to them is what they're doing, and it's not according to God. And if it's apart from God and not drawing them to God, what does it become? It becomes an idol. It becomes worthless. And that's exactly what the work of the churches is going to come to. God is going to tear down three big ones, and they're simply 
on where you can go to find the answers. And he's going to raise up one to tell the answer and to show what is going to happen with the two. Behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molded images are wind and confusion, just like so much breeze blowing you in the face, but does no good. Well, let's see, can I get through? Well, let's give it a shot. I've got a few minutes left here. We'll get into Isaiah 42 at least. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. God is going to, he's been talking about one that he's going to raise up here. Now, it's almost hard in some of these passages to separate when he's talking about Christ, who is doing the work of the Father and the human messenger that he has sent. But I think we can see clearly, if we look at the whole context here, that he is speaking not only of Christ, who is ultimately the one doing the greatest work, but one also who is a human who is a type of Christ in Zerubbabel. Uh, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, and whom my soul delights. He's going to have a leader that he will delight in. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Isn't that, isn't that what it says in Revelation 11? Uh, first of all, leave out the court of the Gentiles. Go to the altar and then the worship there. And that is, go to the ministry and the church first. And then later, go to the Gentiles and warn the entire world and bring judgment before them. The two witnesses are going to bring God's judgment before them. He's going to tell them. God is God, and all your gods that you worship, and your government, and your new world order, and everything that you're trying to do, is going to come to nothing. And they're not going to do it in a, let's say, self-righteous, or uh, vain, or egocentric way. God says they'll come in sackcloth, that is, in meekness and in humility. And we'll see that, well, down here in the next verse or two. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment to truth. Now, is Christ, when he comes back, going to come in that fashion? No, he's going to come when he comes back after his honeymoon with his bride after a year, after the seven last plagues, he's going to come back as a knight in shining armor. He's going to come on a white horse with blood. And that is more than a bruised reed and smoking flax. So he's going to send a message at the end to the world that's going to come in the spirit of meekness, the spirit of humility, because it's going to be God's power, not the power of men. Now, fire will come out of their mouths to destroy anyone that hurt them, but the attitude is going to be one of meekness and of humility. That has to be in all of God's end-time people. That's seen in Zephaniah 2, where he says he will save out for himself a meek and humble people. And even when he tells us to gather ourselves at the beginning of Zephaniah 2, he says, if you will be meek and humble, maybe you will be protected. And that is echoed in Micah and several other places, I think, Habakkuk. Uh, several places it's mentioned that that has to be the attitude of the end-time church. 
But that doesn't mean the judgment can't come forth. Now, a cry of repentance and crying aloud and sparing not is not uh, against that. There has to be a cry for repentance for the end time for God's people. But when God's work goes out against the world, even though it is a sharp, crushing instrument and will knock them down flat, it is going to be the power of God, not the power of men that do it. So we have to understand that all of us must be meek, we must be mild, we must be loving and kind and gentle, and not have the worst interests of mankind in mind. But God will do what he does through men. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles or coastlands shall wait for his law. So the word that is given out by the messenger of God will not be discouraged until the very end. And then, of course, after dying, will be resurrected and come with Christ to rule the whole world with a rod of iron. And we as kings and priests, with Christ and with those two, will also be there to be kings and priests with our husband, Jesus Christ, 144,000 of us if we're included, and I hope that we are. And of course, the type changes back and forth. The Isle shall wait for his law. Of course, it's the, the law of God that we're talking about here. Thus says God the Lord, He that created the heavens and spreads them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, He that gives breath to the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. All right, he's reestablishing here. Uh, even though God may use men, it's the work of God. For I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. So he's talking about his messengers that he's called in righteousness. And will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, a light that they can see. Aren't we supposed to be a light set upon a hill that the world can see? That's what God's people are supposed to be in the end. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and then to sit in darkness out of the prison house. The whole world is in darkness, and only God's enlightened ones are in light. The world has a false group of people who call themselves the Illuminati, the illumined ones. That's what they call themselves. And yet they are in the darkness of Satan. And we, spiritual Judah, the church, are the only ones who dwell in the light. But he says the people that walked in darkness in the Messiah and here in Isaiah in another place would see a great light. So, on a spiritual level, the message of God is going to be preached and it will open the eyes of the blind. It will bring the prisoners from the darkness and the gloominess and the incarceration of prison and then they'll sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now, I believe that there will also be physical healings, and the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will walk, but also they will see and hear spiritually, which is even more important. I am the Lord, he says, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. We're going to have to come to grips with the fact that there is a living God and that we had better get near him. 
Then he says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and the new things and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isn't there an incredible story in Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, throughout all the minor prophets, and now we're finding it here in Isaiah, the same story is laid out in much greater detail that Haggai gives. This is one of the major prophets, wrote much more than the minor or the smaller prophets. He's telling us things that are going to happen before they spring forth. And this story has been hidden. Most of the church does not understand this story at all today. They're not preaching it. They don't grasp it. They don't get it. They're just out there trying to preach the gospel around the world so the end may come. Sing to the Lord a new song, verse 10, and his praise from the end of the earth. You that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. We're supposed to stand up and sing this message. Just like Miriam and all the Israelites sang the message when they came out of the Red Sea. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar does inhabit. Now doesn't it say in Zechariah 2 that Jerusalem must be builded as villages without walls at the end time. The context of the two witnesses. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof, the villages, so we're going to have small cities, villages, in the wilderness at the end that will sing before God and lift up their voice. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. God is going to take his people to a place of safety in the rocks. And there they will sing to God. So those villages that comprise Jerusalem at the end are then going to be taken up into the mountains, into the rock. And there they will be a light to the world, a city set upon a hill that cannot be hid. They will blind the eyes of those that walk in darkness, the rest of the world, because all the world will worship the beast, except those few who are faithful to God. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the islands. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yes, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. Any power that is given to man is going to be coming straight from God. I have long time held my peace. I have been still and have refrained myself. Now will I cry like a prevailing woman. You're going to hear a scream that the whole world is going to hear coming from God. I will destroy and devour at once. Once he stands up to do his mighty work, his strange work, as it says in Zechariah 2 and other places, the whole world is going to hear about it. Zechariah 3.13, I, I tied in there. You can check that later. I won't, I won't forsake the time. It's the time of the end. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs, verse 15. And I will make the rivers islands and I will dry up the pools. This is the millennium. This, see, this is still pre-millennial. All this that we've been talking about, the work of the church at the end and the two witnesses, is pre-millennial. He's still talking after he's laid this story out about how he is going to lay the earth waste. Verse 16, And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. God is going to show us a trail 
what to do, but we haven't known. Haven't grasped. We all thought we were going to Peter. I don't think so. We didn't have it understood. We didn't know what God was going to do, but it's laid out right here. I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do to them, and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed to trust in graven images, to say to the molten images, You are our gods. Who is blind? Uh, hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. The whole, the whole church is deaf and blind to what God is going to do. They don't understand these scriptures. Who is blind but my serpent, or deaf is my messenger that I sent? And I, I believe that right now even Zerubbabel, based on this scripture and what I read in Zechariah 4, is also blind to death. Who is blind is he that is perfect, and blind is the Lord's servant. We, we attributed this scripture to Herbert Armstrong at one point, and he became somewhat blind. He, he thought his work was the end of it, but it wasn't. There is a work that is bigger that has to be done yet. Seeing many things, but you observe not. His servant sees many things. This is Rumblebell that we're talking about. Sees many things, but doesn't get it all. Opening the ears, but he hears not. He doesn't get the whole story. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Now Christ is going to do that, but he's also going to do it through Zerubbabel. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all full of them, uh, they are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivers, for a spoil, and none says, restore. They don't have any answers. They don't know what they're doing. None of them understands that God is going to restore the church, the latter temple, and in it will come peace. Who among you will give ear to this? Who's going to listen? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil of Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? God is the one that did this to the church. For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it has set him on fire round about, yet he knew not. And it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. All that has happened to us, we haven't understood. God is laying it out for us right here in Isaiah, as he did in Zechariah, Haggai and Zechariah. So, I'm out of time. We'll stop right there for today and pick it up there, God willing.